Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE dot com. Weeze listeners obviously need no introduction to Ezra Klein, uh, but these episodes need introductions anyway. Uh, so Ezra, co-founder of Vox, uh, co-founder of the Weeds podcast, and the author of a great new book that is called Why We're Polarized. Uh, I was really excited. I was excited to see this book come out because, frankly, Ezra's been working on it on and off for, for many, many years. Uh, and it's a really great book now that it's out. I think we had a great conversation about, like, what it really means, what polarization means, what its significance is, and what, if anything, we can do about it. Uh, so I, I I mean, if you like the weeds, you're going to love this conversation. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, my guest today is a renowned author um, at Vox.com, co-founder, editor-at-large, uh, host of The Ezra Klein Show. He is Ezra Klein himself. Uh, he's got a great new book out, uh, out in a couple days. It is called Why We Are Polarized, and it is about polarization and why we are it. Um, so, Ezra, welcome. Welcome to the Thank weeds. You. I mean, this is like, you know, a really basic question, uh, but the book is called Why We're Polarized. Um, but, like, before you can understand why we're polarized, like, what, at least to you, like, for your purposes, like, what does that mean that that we're polarized? Because it, it's, a, it's a word that gets kind of thrown around a lot and I think can mean a few different kinds of things. So, like, what is the phenomenon you're trying to explain? Yeah, I'm actually glad you asked this because a lot of the book ends up having to disentangle different ideas of polarization. So just polarization itself is – think of polarization as something clustering around two poles. Mm -hmm. The more it is clustered around two poles that are different from each other, the more polarized it is. Um, So if you think about, like, two magnets on a table – uh, if there's, like, a lot of metal filings just, like, kind of scattered between them, mm-hmm. it's not very polarized. If you turn up the power of the magnets so that all the metal filings are around one or the other, it is perfectly polarized, um, particularly if it's half and half. So that's polarization. The say, and, and it's different, I want to note, than something like extremism or disagreement. We can get into all this, but polarization is often used as a synonym for those terms, but it very much isn't. Um, mm-hmm. We've had long periods in this country where we were not very polarized politically, but the level of disagreement was incredibly intense. You had violence in the streets, urban riots, um, but yet our political parties were not that polarized, which is to say that those disagreements um, were not sorted into the two poles. Uh, okay, so that's one thing. The next thing is that when you're talking about political polarization, you can be talking about it 
in different dimensions and at different levels. So mm-hmm. one question you could have is policy polarization, right? Do people support or oppose universal health care? How do they feel about marijuana legalization? Should we go to war in Iraq or Afghanistan? Another thing that uh, political scientists talk about and in some ways seems to be more typical of what we're seeing right now is what's called effective polarization. How do you feel about your party and the other party? So you can have a situation where effective polarization is going way high. So I really hate the other party. I really fear them. But policy polarization is still pretty mixed. In an interesting way, Donald Trump is a very good example himself personally, certainly in 2016, of effective polarization. Here's a guy. He is kind of tossing out all sorts of different policy ideas, some of them at least from what he says. It's not obviously how he governed are even a bit liberal. He likes Social Security, thinks Planned Parenthood does a good job, wants to raise taxes on people like himself, thinks the Iraq war was a bad idea. So by the typical standards of American politics, he's not that policy polarized, again, in what he's saying. But he hates the Democratic Party, wants to lock Hillary Clinton in jail, um, thinks the other side, you know, maybe belongs in jail, is rigging the election against him, is trying to destroy America, has ruined this country forever. That's a very high level of effective polarization. Right. And so on on the mass level, right, I, I think Morris Fiorina is like one of the last holdouts, like polarization skeptics. And sort the way, of. So this is a sorting versus polarization right. question. Yeah. But I mean, so it's like, but it's like one of the ways you would make that point is you can look at a lot of policy issues, right? And you can say like 80% of people reject the idea that there should be taxpayer funding for abortion. And 80% of people reject the idea that abortion should be banned. And like, actually, America is not that polarized, right? Like, there's a vital center of opinion. There are lots of 80-20 issues. Like, we're all happy-go-lucky, get along. And I mean, part of the point of the book, I mean, part of I think the whole problem with that worldview is like, that's obviously not like anyone's actual experience of the yeah, political so, system. So there's a couple things here. So, yes. Yeah, so you you sure end this well. So there's this debate in political science. It's understood as the Morris Fiorina versus Alan Abramowitz debate. And I have spent a lot of time in this debate, and I don't think it is actually a very meaningful debate, but 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 let me say what it is. So what Friarina argues is that, as you say, there's a lot – there's a certain amount of elite-level polarization. So it is the case that, you know, um, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and – I'm sorry, uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi are very different from each other in terms of what they believe. But he would argue that that is not – that's not, not really happening in the country. The country's views on things are mixed and, and muddled. And But what he would say and what everybody is saying is that there's been more sorting and particularly elite-level sorting. So you can imagine it this way. So imagine you have 100 people in the country and you're looking at the question of cannabis policy, right? Should we legalize marijuana or should we um, keep it criminalized? And let's say that the way it shakes out is 40 people want to legalize it, 40 people want to criminalize it, and 20 people don't know. Now, you could have that randomly sorted into the two parties in sort of like situation A. So the Democratic Party has some legalizers and criminalizers, so does the Republican Party. Um, And then in situation B, that perfectly sorts by party. Um, So now you have like all the legalizers in the Democratic Party, all the um, criminalizers in the Republican Party, and the undecideds are 10 and 10. Mm -hmm. And so what a lot of what some political scientists would say is that isn't polarization. That's just sorting. The underlying structure of opinion hasn't changed at all. Nobody has changed their mind on anything. What has happened is that they've sorted into two parties versus a situation 
where what happens is that you move from having 20 people undecided to nobody undecided. Those people all attached to legalization or criminalization. And now we have more polarization. The underlying ideas have polarized. Um, I side with some people in this debate who say sorting is just a subcategory of polarization and like this is not a meaningful distinction. And then I think the place where the rubber really hits the road on this, which you gestured to, which is really important, is that I think one thing leads to the other thing because Mm -hmm. we have a huge amount of evidence that people in the electorate take their cues from the parties they trust. Um, So, you know, you're a a Democrat or somebody at least who doesn't like Republicans and then the Democrats begin talking about, you know, Medicare for all or they begin, you know, saying trade deals are good or bad. This is probably not something oftentimes that you've spent like a ton of time yourself trying to figure out. But so you you, you take a cue. And so if what you have is sorting by party, soon enough you're going to polarize people on the issues too, marijuana being a, a good example. People have moved quite a bit on marijuana legalization, not because they like sat around reading Mark Kleiman papers about marijuana legalization, but because the parties have changed, what they're hearing from people changes. And so when you have that elite level sorting, you also end up changing people's underlying views and creating more of this uh, policy polarization. And so partisan and ideological identities, right, they're these sort of higher order constructs. So when you have the sorting on the individual issue topics, you create the polarization on the high order constructs, yeah. right? I mean, it's it's like not really meaningful to say that like, well, if we ignored like the larger structure of American political debate and like just talked about one thing, you, yes. you know, we, we, we wouldn't be because <laughs> yeah, like no, that's that, that, that's that's, that's not how politics works, right? So, like uh, you have to vote for candidates, right? You have to uh, uh, affiliate, and the and the 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 parties' brands and the, have become more distinct. Right. Yes. And, and, and more so, and thus more poll. So this is the big picture. So uh, a, a few things here. One is that the book is fundamentally uh, arguing that identity, political identity is the primary locus and driver of polarization. That's probably a little bit more associated with this effective dimension, but it ends up driving both. And so what is happening is that over the past 50 or 60 years, you had the two parties which contain the same names, Republican and Democrat, that they did then. They have sorted tremendously in terms of the identity groups in them. So if you go back to 50 years ago and you look at the demographic split between the two parties, you actually will find that they weren't that different on any dimension. Liliana Mason, the political scientist, has very good research here. So they didn't have – they weren't hugely different in in terms of uh, their racial representation, in terms of their ideological representation. You had a lot of liberal Republicans. You had a lot of very conservative Democrats. So when when was this? Like what what are we talking about? So we're talking here, I would say like, let's call this the, um, at least the part where we have very good data. Let's call this like the 50s to 70s, but it seems to have been going on quite a bit before that. Um, I have a lot of quotes and some analysis from our mutual friend, Sam Sam Rosenfeld's book, The Polarizers, which is great, uh, about you you have a huge amount of debate happening in mid-century American politics in which you will have people like Richard Nixon or Robert F. Kennedy or Thomas Dewey saying, look, there are these people who want the Republican and Democratic parties to represent conservative and liberal ideas and identities. But that would be bad because there's already so much division in this country that if you split the parties by ideology too, like, well, then it'll get really bad. And there's this great um, Thomas Bora, Senator Thomas Bora quote from I think the 20s or 30s saying, you know, any man who wins a Republican primary is a Republican. It doesn't matter what he believes. He's a Republican. And so 
we know that in this period, the parties are similar in terms of their representation of um, Christians, of, of African-Americans, but also not that different ideologically. And so what happens as you have the post-Civil Rights Act era and the Dixiecrat Democratic part, wing of the party dies, uh, like literally like it's a generational cohort replacement, is that you no longer have this big block of conservative Southern Democrats like messing up the party polarization in the system. They eventually become Republicans. And now that the Republican Party is conservative and is a home for like basically like white resentment politics and the Democratic Party is liberal and is a home for uh, like the politics of diversity or what Ron Brownstein likes to call uh, coalitions of restoration versus – what is this other one? Ascendance. Um, ascendance. Then it, it like kicks off this like flywheel sorting mechanism where now it's like the Democratic Party is almost half non-white. The Republican Party is overwhelmingly white. The single largest religious group in the Democratic Party is religiously unaffiliated, the nuns. Um, the Obviously, the Republican Party is overwhelmingly Christian. The Democratic Party is overwhelmingly urban. There's no place in this country that is denser than uh, 900 people per square mile that is Republican. Uh, if you go back in American history, density did not used to predict what party you voted for. Uh, psychologically, we have all these psychological ways of sorting people. That didn't used to sort people very effectively by party. Now it does. Liberal, there's no no one in Congress, which did not used to be true. There's no Democrat in Congress more conservative than any Republican. Um, you used to have a lot of Democrats more conservative than many Republicans, Strom Thurmond, was the second most conservative senator uh, at one point, and he was a Democrat at that time. And so what you have is this, like, era of identity stacking. So, you know, people's ideological, religious, geographic, um, cultural, racial, psychological, et cetera, identities are all stacking instead of pulling them in different directions. And that makes the differences between the two parties, the both demographic and uh, agenda-oriented, and the fear people have of the other party, negative polarization, much, much, much stronger. And like that kicks off and, and creates these feedback loops with institutions. But that's, I think, the fundamental story of what we're in today. People are much more decided because the differences are much bigger, and that pushes people to decide more, which makes the differences bigger, and so on and so forth. So one thing that I find sometimes a little vexing uh, in, in this mess is that, you know, you really sort of um, cue into the the kind of mass psychology aspects of, of these things and the identity-focused drivers of of polarization and, and the, the, the sort of sorting process. But something that, you know, I observe day-to-day ignoring regular people's views and just talking to politicians and Washington insiders is that there's an incredible amount of, like, policy content to partisan conflict in the United States and, like, incredible stubbornness, like, on the elite level, right, about, like, small details of things. Like, Republicans, like, they really want to win. They think the left is, like, here to destroy the country. Um, you know, all the effective polarization stuff. But they are totally not going to raise the minimum wage to $12 an hour just because that polls well and it would help them win elections, right? Like, they have this very unpopular position on the minimum wage that, like, they think is right, right? Like, they have, like, read some studies that tell them this is bad, and they are proud to, like, stand by these principles, right? That, like, minimum wage is bad, that tax cuts for the rich are good, that, like, they know are not electoral winners, but that they think, like, are are the right thing to do, and they, and they fight for them. And that's also polarization, but it seems totally different and in some ways, like, the opposite from the sort of, like, mass psychology things you're talking about. Maybe. I actually think this is pretty well explained by the mass psychology things. But so 
you're you're right. Um, I think a couple things are happening here. One is that parties, for a bunch of different reasons we can talk about, have gotten weaker. And parties, with their sort of thirst for power, were the players who would do something like that. There's evidence, for instance, that in contested primaries, parties try to even non even in non-competitive seats, parties try to support more moderate candidates, um, both Republican and Democratic parties, because they think they're going to win. And so. Parties, actually, one thing you will see is that a lot of the people who scan as moderate in these studies have very, like, quote-unquote extreme opinions. They're just very unsorted. So they'll believe, like, yeah, like, we should um, not let – we should deport all immigrants and legalize marijuana, Uh right? And in the parties, those two ideas don't go together. But for just, like, a person looking at the world, they're like, why not, right? Why not believe both of those things? Or, like, they're fully pro-life but also want Canadian-style, you know, single-payer health care. Right. So, so, you get, so you get, like, a low consistency score. You get a low consistency score, which tracks as moderate even though it isn't. Parties often – people who are connected to parties – often have, like again, like what we would call more moderate views, but that's because a party is, is, is imposing some of this, uh, some of this like, we need to win, we can't like, go, like rush all the way off the cliff. But parties have gotten a lot weaker in this regard. But so this is actually a really interesting study. Um, it's a book called Open Verse Close by Chris Federico and co-authors whose names I'm, I'm not remembering at the moment. <laughs> uh, and what they, they do a lot of this psychological structuring of the electorate. And the thing they find that I think is so interesting is that among people who are not that engaged in politics, who don't like politics that much, who don't know that much about it, and who don't participate that often, material – like their sense of how politicians or political parties will affect them drives their uh, voting, right? So it's like the question is like, am I uninsured? Well, then maybe I want to support somebody who's going to get me health insurance. But the more people get invested in politics, the more their political behavior is driven by self-expression. So it's not tracking like – I don't have insurance and need it. It's tracking. I am somebody who like believes and wants to project about myself in the world that other people should have health insurance. I am somebody who believes that it is bad for the government to reach in and tell heroic small business owners how much they have to pay people. So whatever may be like the power structure about that, right, the, the, the question of like what is the easiest way to win an election – the people who are most engaged in politics are the people whose identities are most tied up in their political opinions. And so to, like, violate that identity, to, like, make some point about how to compromise, like, maybe you'll do it if you really have to. But it's actually the opposite of why you're there. That, that And I think that's, like, actually a really helpful thing to think about when you see the way people are arguing about things on Twitter. The higher you go in political engagement, the more what you're doing is projecting your identity out into the world and the less likely you are to be connected to, like, your literal material resource needs. Um, you often are arguing for other people's resource needs. Um, and you are arguing for what you think is the good thing about the world. But it's 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 not bounded as much by direct resource considerations. But it's it's also it's it's position taking rather than it's position taking. Self And then there's a whole social psychology dimension of you know our parties particularly at that level and when you're talking about people in DC very much those are social networks and groups. And oftentimes what people are doing in groups is trying to say like I am the person who is like most like I am the most groupish of this of these people right like I am the person who like you can really trust like I I really believe this stuff. And you know there's a lot of social sanction on violating what the group believes even to win. Um, you know, like we are both covering the Democratic primary right now and people really do not like on Twitter the arguments that you might need to support something you think is worse 
because it might be more likely to win. And part of that is that on Twitter, which has incredibly intense group political dynamics, to be somebody saying that, like, it makes you kind of disloyal to the things that actually bind the group together, which is not at least conceptually a thirst for power, but a desire to change the world across these, like, value-oriented lines. Okay, let's let's take a break uh, for, for ads in pursuit of material gain. Um, and I, I want to talk about this sort of paradoxical weakening of the parties. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So this is, I think, one of the things that would really, like, surprise a political scientist, like, zoomed forward in time from the 1970s or or, or 1980s, is that politics has become more ideological and more polarized, but the political parties as institutions seem to keep getting weaker and delegitimized. And on some level, like— that doesn't seem to make sense, right? Like, if the parties are more organized and more ideological and people are more sorted into them and their social bases are more distinct, like, I think part of the thought of the sort of uh, progenitors of polarization was that we should have, like, strong European-style political parties with real discipline uh, rather than these, like, mid-century, like, who's-to-say-what's-going-on things. Uh, but actually, I mean, as you've said, right, like, a very important part of contemporary American politics is that the the parties, qua parties, ha- have become weaker. 
Yeah, and I want to give credit here. The, the best line on this is Julia Zari, um, who's a Marquette University political scientist. And she wrote actually in a Vox article originally that the central fact of American politics in this era is that parties are weak and partisanship is strong. Mm-hmm. And these are arguably both factors in polarization, but, but, but let's take them in turn. So parties are weak. I think the simplest way to think about this is look at primaries. 50, 60 years ago, Donald Trump has no chance at winning a political primary, nor does Bernie Sanders, because in order to win a primary, what you need to do is win convention delegates in this horse trading scenario. And the parties have tremendous control over that, right? These The delegates are basically, you know, in sort of machine-like structures, and like they are released by party bosses. And so the question of who can win a primary is not uh, of who can become the nominee is not necessarily like who can excite new voters in New Hampshire. It's who can win over these longtime party stalwarts. And um, and so that really – that has its good sides. It has its bad sides. But what it does fundamentally is it keeps outsiders out. It gives parties a lot of control over the agenda and it creates an incentive system for being kind of like a good party soldier if you want to ever become a presidential nominee. Um, so one argument and, and Ziblatt and Levitsky argue this in, in How Democracies Die and I think it's a good point is that Donald Trump and the things he's playing with are not new. We've always had sort of demagogic showmen who, you know, probably could win 20 or 30 percent of uh, of the vote um, in a primary. You know, Huey Long, uh, Henry Ford, Father Coughlin. Although I was told Coughlin. Uh, somebody recently told me is how you actually pronounce that. Really? Um, yeah, but they could have never gotten anywhere in a party convention, so it didn't really even make sense for them to try. Um, but now the parties have lost a huge amount of control over their primaries, and they've really lost control over everything. So they've lost control um, in general. Just media gatekeepers are weaker. So when the media had a lot of gatekeepers and like Bill Bradley spent a lot of time hanging out with John F. Kennedy, when you needed to get covered on you know one of the three nightly newscasts – your long-time relationships with producers and, you know, like how they did their reporting and who the party was telling them really mattered. Like that, that they had a lot of control over information. Um, similarly, when parties had a lot more control over money and fundraising, uh, that also helped them decide who was going to be heard and like what ideas were going to be shown. Parties have lost control over all of this. And alongside a lot of other things going on, they've just lost legitimacy. I mean, the idea that I think it is very telling that after 2016, when Donald Trump bull rushes his way into the Republican nomination and Democrats really look at that with horror. That You could imagine that making Democrats say, oh, thank God Democrats have superdelegates and maybe we should even make that stronger because you definitely want some party elites around to say no if some like lunatic uh, wins the primary. Um, but instead what Democrats do in part because of the Bernie Sanders experience is they weaken their superdelegates. So they say superdelegates can now only vote in the case of a, a contested convention only on the second ballot and thereafter. So the, what you're seeing there is that parties have become too illegitimate to exert direct control over primaries at all. So parties are a lot weaker. And then for all these polarization reasons I'm, I'm mentioning, partisanship is stronger. And I think this is a confusing idea to people because we have more independence than ever and so on. But a really useful fact about independence now is that people who are independent are as reliable in their vote choice as strong partisans were in the 1970s. Um, so strong partisans in the 1970s were more like were as likely to vote for the other party as people who call themselves independents are today. And the, and the reason is not that like anybody's lying. The reason is that the parties are super different today. So I mean, in the 70s, you may well be a liberal who likes Democrats, but maybe you're in a place like George Romney is running for governor um, in Michigan. And like, he's a 
liberal candidate. He has a liberal agenda on race and other issues. And so you support him or you are conservative in the South. And so maybe you were voting for a Republican for president, but the Democrats in the South were conservative. So you were voting for them. That stops. And so now it's very, very clear, even to people who don't have super strong political opinions, which side of the political divide they fall on. I, the way I say it in the book is that it's a lot easier to tell the difference between a donkey and an elephant than a donkey and a mule. Mm-hmm. And so you can go back in American politics and like – I Barry definitely Goldwater's... could not tell the difference between a donkey and <laughs> a mule. You can go back in American politics and it's like Barry Goldwater's A Choice Not an Echo convention speech is all about this. Like this idea that Republicans are running these echo candidates and he'll be a, a sharp choice. So that's what makes partisanship stronger. Not even the people like their, their own party necessarily. But negative partisanship is super strong now. They they don't have to like their party to fear the other party for being either demographically or ideologically different than they are. And so when you put this together, parties lose control of who they nominate, but partisans are very reliable in who they vote for. It's a pretty serious problem or at least like opening in the vulnerability in the system that gets you somebody like Donald Trump. If you can win a party primary, you basically get within spitting distance of winning the presidency, right? Almost no matter who you are. Uh, and now you see who is president. Right. And so uh, you you sort of um, briefly alluded to, to demographic threat, uh, which, uh, you know, plays, I think, a, a significant role in your in your book and, and also in some other things that you've that you've written over the years. And this is a kind of, you know, uh, a salient thing in the in the in the Trump era, I think. Um, but it's again, it's not when when the original polarization kind of movement started happening. I don't think it was at all obvious that it was going to play out in this kind of racial and, and demographic way. And I think it's one reason why polarized politics has turned out to be, I think, probably a little bit uglier than like the APSA report writers uh, were, were hoping for. Instead of like a high minded debate about ideological visions for the country. We have, like, at least a a certain level of a, like, um, alarmist race war. Um, And what what, what happened there? Yeah, so, as you say, um, there was this famous report the American Political Science Association releases in 1950, the APSA report, and it it says – the problem in American politics is the parties are not polarized enough, that it's very hard. The, the the most important decision voters make is which party to support. But a voter in like Alabama supporting the Democratic Party is not getting their choice honored given what the National Democratic Party is doing. And so we, we need these polarized parties. But the idea of that is that they'll have these like very clear agendas and people argue about the role of taxes in society. Um, that ends up not being well, – that, that's one of the things that happens, but, but maybe not the primary one. Um, A context of American politics right now that I think is very important is we're living in this age of very, very, very rapid demographic change in in very fundamental ways. So America is becoming, um, the way demographers put it, a majority-minority nation. So uh, we are in 2040 or something expected to pass a point where you have a a plurality of the country is non-white according to the census. And and people argue about this, um, maybe people who are non-Hispanic, non uh, yeah, Hispanic um, Hispanics right now will begin to self-identify as white. Things could interrupt this, but nevertheless, um, the amount of demographic change is fast, and people think it is even faster than that. If you poll people, they think we're already a majority-minority nation. The same thing is happening basically on religion. We are very rapidly becoming a post-Christian nation, not in the sense that Christians are not the plurality, but if you look at the numbers uh, in among seniors, I think it is 70% of seniors are white and Christian. 
And among um, the young people, people under 29, it's three in 10. Uh, there's a very, very, the fastest rising uh, religious group are people who do not have religious affiliation at all. So there's a real feeling, and you can hear this if you listen to like William Barr give these speeches about how religion is under attack, Attorney General William Barr, but, you know, Rod Dreher and others very much make this argument that uh, that the sort of assault on religion is is dominant and a dominant force in our politics right now. Uh, the share of the country that is foreign-born has risen from about 4% in the 1970s. It's about 14 to 15% now. And that's not a record yet, but it will, according to the trends, will soon become a record. And so we're living through this era where the country is becoming a lot browner, a lot less Christian, um, and uh, a lot, and to some degree, um, less native-born. And people really feel that. Um, they don't all, they don't feel it because like they read census reports. They feel it because they look on television and all of a sudden there are a lot of non-white faces and a lot of debates in the media about representation. They, um, you know, they look on television and we've gone from in 15 years, gay marriage was like an impossibility in a lot of people's minds to now there are a lot of like, mo like a lot of television shows make a point of, uh, of showing gay characters and now uh, trans characters positively. And the Supreme Court said that there's a right to gay marriage in the Constitution. Uh, you have to press one for English in a lot of places. So people feel this and there's a lot of studies showing that, particularly when um, when people feel they are losing demographic uh, majorities, they become very conservative. Uh, they become conservative both on like that issue and even on other issues. They support the Republican Party in higher numbers, and so to the extent that people feel that white people in particular feel that they are losing a demographic majority that they had, that is going to create a sort of racial a, a potency to a racialized conservatism, which in particular Donald Trump jumped up and, and took advantage of. But this is something happening, I always think it's important to say, on both sides of the divide. I mean, the Democratic Party, and you've written about this in The Great Awakening, which I quote in the book, the Democratic Party has moved very far to the left very quickly on race, on immigration, to some degree even on religion. And uh, the kinds of candidates it promotes, the, the things it demands of candidates are very, very different. I mean, if you listen to Bernie Sanders on immigration now versus 15 years ago, it's very hard to, to, to connect those two candidates. Barack Obama in his re-election campaign won a smaller percentage of the white vote than Michael Dukakis did in 1988, but he was able to win. And so there like really is a dimension where the Democratic Party has become this much – this party that is much more um, sensitive to the concerns of, of non-white voters and represents them much both symbolically in terms of who it uh, uh, elects um, visually um, and in its policy agenda. And that's created a sort of like equal and opposite counter-reaction on the right. So the part, the most important form of polarization we face now is a polarization over how do you feel about the browning of America. Donald Trump is not a candidate when he ran in 2016 who ran on like an incredibly clear view of limited government. He's a candidate who ran on the idea that it was bad that so many brown people were coming into the country. And it turns out that is what the Republican Party wanted a candidate to represent about itself. And something that I think is interesting, I mean, you said Democrats have become more attuned to the sort of concerns and, and desires of, of non-white people, which I think is certainly true. But another thing that's happened, right, and this is a real sorting dynamic, like as Democrats got more attuned to the concerns of black and Latino people, the white people who remained Democrats became incredibly attuned to, in some ways, like, overshooting, like, actual African-American and Latino 
opinion because it becomes people who are ideologically invested yes. in a diversity vision of America. And a way to not just say that like African-Americans and Latinos are opposed to, but they have a – non-white people have a practical concern for like their own personal interests in non-discrimination, not necessarily like a high-ordered like – woke view of of the world, whereas, like, the white Democrats who are left, as there are fewer mm-hmm. of them, have this, like, very – and it's it's why the immigration rhetoric in particular has, has shifted so much, right? Because it's a real, like, a positive good theory of diversity, not a, like, we have to tolerate difference or we shouldn't be assholes to minority groups, but that, like, this is better, that this is the real – America, that there has to be a, a black Marvel superhero, you, you know, that yeah. like, that like, that like, this is a, a an important thing. And then that in turn makes Republicans look at Democrats and be like, what the heck is happening here? Like, I used to think that not being racist meant anybody can use the water fountain. But like, now I'm told it means like, I have to have all kinds of demands about cultural products and how they look and how everything is. And I have to like rethink the role of Columbus Day and the holiday schedule, right? Because it's it's been a real changing of like, of like what anti-racism is, Yeah, I mean, I I go back and I I show that, um, you know, if you look at Bill Clinton's 96 Democratic Party platform, you look at the immigration portion of that, it reads like Donald Trump today. Right. It's been a very, very fast change. So there's a bunch of super interesting stuff here. But one thing that I I, want to note on it is that something I found really interesting, I think I have some internal agita around the psychological, like the political psychology literature, because in some ways, I think that the measurements are very crude. Mm -hmm. uh, And so I'm sometimes like concerned about relying on them too much. And on the other hand, I think what is being picked up is really important. Um, And in some ways, it's like probably stronger than the measurements are even able to, to capture. But one interesting thing in that literature is that when you look at uh, the way the the electorate has sorted by psychology, so there are a lot of different ways people will group people psychologically. But let's just say, like the big thing it tends to be measuring is how much do you, how much are you open versus closed? How much are you high in openness to experience? You look at change as sort of a positive versus high are you high versus how much are you low on that and high in conscientiousness? And you prefer tradition. You like the way things were. You change makes you feel nervous, um, and so that is now an incredibly powerful sorting mechanism in the white electorate. So the Democratic Party has a, a white electorate that is extremely pro-change. And one of the ways that's coming out is like extremely pro-diversity. And the Republican Party has a much more closed-off white electorate. That does not really sort the non-white electorate. In particular, it doesn't sort African-Americans. On these measures, African-Americans are often um, quite low in openness to experience and, and high in conscientiousness. They – or, you know, the way um, Mark Hetherington and, and Weiler put it, they have this fixed versus fluid measure. And African-American voters are often much more fixed, much more traditionalist. But they're all Democrats because the Republican Party has been very hostile to them. That actually creates very different dynamics in the Democratic Party. And it's why you have candidates like Joe Biden who are often pretty strong because they're trying to put together a coalition of these like very change-oriented white liberals and these much more traditionalist like South Carolina and African – church-going African-Americans. Whereas the Republican Party can just go deep on more of one kind of person. But if you you look at at Biden's – voter support, right? I mean, it's a fascinating thing, right? But, like, the two big predictors of supporting Joe Biden are 
are you African-American, which makes you much more likely to back Joe Biden? And are you hostile to African-Americans, which also makes you much more likely to vote oh, for Joe Biden? I didn't know Biden. that last part. That's super interesting. And it's because he appeals to the – it's become eccentric, but like low openness Democrats. Yes. Right. Which is a the vast majority of low openness white people have just yeah. become Republicans. And, but there are some kicking around. They're in the firefighters union, whatever else. They like Joe Biden. But also African-Americans, regardless of personality characteristics or disposition, just like look around and they're like Republicans. No. And right. the reason Barack Obama was an unstoppable Democratic juggernaut was that he put together the coalition of like African-Americans of all kinds of types and then white liberals, right? right? Like high openness liberals. And like that, if you can put that together, that's very rare. But so it's that kind of coalitional candidate who who is favored on the Democratic side. But the other thing I was going to say on in, in terms of this like sort of great awakening among white liberals is it also goes back to, to some of that other research that as you become more politically engaged, what you're doing is expressing identity through politics. And the way you express now a democratic identity compared to at some other points in, in the Democratic Party, or at least one of the key ways, is you express a real um, appreciation for diversity um, racially, sexually, and, and so on. And, and, and you really express optimism about that. You understand racism as a systemic problem that is still holding African-Americans back today. I don't have all these numbers um, in, in my head, but they're all in the book. But you can look at these Pew polls that have been pretty steady from 94 going, going to now. And the Democratic and Republican parties were not that split on a lot of these racial uh, identity questions in, in 94, right? Like, why are African-Americans having trouble getting ahead in American society today? And now it's like these 60-point divisions. And they're really, really big. And they're really big in part because what it means to be a Democrat has changed. And, you know, and I think an interesting thing is you see how that affects even Democrats of, a, of an older cast here. So Bernie Sanders has traditionally been a Democrat who – um, not a Democrat, actually, to be very specific. He's been a, a, an independent so democratic socialist from Vermont who wants to restore this old class-based idea of the democratic identity, right? He speaks very highly of FDR, who was, I think, not that racially woke, but, but, but was very populist. And the thing that has happened after he lost in 2016 to Hillary Clinton, who ran well to his left on race and gender, is he's become much more attuned to those issues and has moved quite a bit to the left on those issues. So where Sanders used to be a candidate who was sort of trying to replace this idea of democratic identity, um, where, you know, you should it, you should understand that as like you dislike millionaires and billionaires and like you believe in in, in, in single-payer health care, he's now sort of also making these arguments about the five kinds of violence done to, to, to non-white people in this country. And he's supported decriminalizing um, unauthorized migration and has become much more of a, a woke Democrat in this way, even if um, I think a lot of people, including myself, don't necessarily think that's where his gut has long been. So this changes the, the locus of conflict between the parties. And you see this, by the way, on the right, too. The After 2012 and Republicans lose to Barack Obama, the, the Republicans have this, you know, post-2012 autopsy led by the RNC. And one of the things the autopsy primarily says is we have to become friendlier, both in our policy and in our symbolic comportment to non-white people. We need to elevate more non-white voices in our leadership. We need to support comprehensive immigration reform. Sean Hannity tries to back Marco Rubio, who's part of the gang of eight in the Senate doing immigration reform. And Donald Trump just like eviscerates that. And you turn on like Fox News now and Tucker Carlson is warning about the brown hordes coming over the coming over the border. And so the the this kind of collision is becoming very central to politics. And once you combine that with political identities, you get a very sort of white um, 
conservative identity and a, and a more racially diverse liberal identity, and you stack those on top of each other, that is a very powerful pairing of conflict. I'm glad you mentioned Tucker Carlson specifically because I, I think he's a great example of how large this topic looms on both sides of the aisle and people's view of things. Because if you if you study your Fox News hosts, as, as I do, um, I would say that on most like concrete policy issues, right, you would say that Tucker is the most moderate. Yes of them, that he is uh, very critical of sort of the role of hedge funds and financial capitalism. Uh, he is um, not just like skeptical of foreign military adventurism, uh, but but actually incorporates a more sophisticated critique of neoconservative foreign policy, not just aversion to American casualties, does stuff like that. At the same time, he is by far the one who is expresses the most alarm about, like, woke racial politics. Like, I remember a famous thing was, like, he did a segment, like, mocking the idea that diversity is our strength. Like, to him, it's outrageous that liberals would go around saying that. And then to liberals, it was outrageous that he would do a segment like that. And he is the most anathematized among left-wing people of the Fox hosts, right? Like, people will say, like, Glenn Greenwald goes on Tucker Carlson's show as if, like, that just, like, without saying anything further, is, like, obviously discrediting, right? Because, like, that's the most unthinkable person that somebody could consort with. And it's because, like, both to Carlson and to the people on the other side, this is so much more profound and important than like a little thing like the structure of the economy or the nature of American foreign policy because it speaks to identity, yes. right? It, it, it expresses like, like, who am I and what is America, right? Whereas like some bill about hedge funds, like maybe manners, you know, if you – there might be billions of dollars at stake. But like it doesn't say anything about me. I think I would still say probably Hannity is most is the most anathematized um, mm. on liberals, in part because he is so bootlicking to like the central <laughs> identity leader for on the other uh -huh. side. But but your point is very well taken. And what I would say is going on with Carlson, who has had a lot of different views on American politics <laughs> over the years, he used to be like sure. a libertarian conservative. Um, but back in his bow tie, he days. sort of looked at. I, I'm I'm not going to uh, characterize whether or not his conversion is sincere or cynical. I, I don't even know you know how people. You, that stuff is you, – you can't see that stuff from the outside. But he is representing the thing Donald Trump promised to represent in 2016 and then didn't. What Donald Trump did in 2016 is he ran in the Republican primary and what he said was the thing we really need to be arguing about is not taxes or cutting Medicare or going to war in Iraq. The thing we need to be stopping – is this browning of America, this taking of your traditional America away from you. And that is what conservatism should be about. It is what the Republican Party should be about. And enough of these fools who, who are going to give up on immigration and like, you know, make it so now you're, you're pressing two for English instead of – like that was, the, that was the problem. Now, Donald Trump does not care about a lot of things. And so what he ends up doing is he gets into office. He continues more or less to play this role on his Twitter feed. He just the other day was tweeting about how he's like the true protector of pre-existing conditions in this country. And maybe he even thinks that is true about himself, although, you know, again, who knows? But he ends up more or less taking whatever the Republicans in Congress want to send him. So he really collapses in terms of this effort to create a sort of populist 
but more white nationalist Republican Party. Um, and Tucker Carlson, who is a more rigorous thinker than Donald Trump and like saw what was going on here, picks this up and emphasizes it and, and really keeps pushing on this idea that the Republican Party should be about, what the right should be about is protecting you from like the people coming in over the border and like the woke people inside the country trying to change American mores and traditions and culture. And it should, in order to build the coalition capable of resisting this existential threat to what America is and represents and, and can become in the world, um, it should, uh, to what you were saying actually earlier, it should compromise on things like immigration and taxing hedge funders and protecting Medicare and, and so on and so forth. All right, so let's, let's take another break, and then, then I want to ask you, ask you the hard questions. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. You know, if you, if you pick this book up, you know, and, and judge a book by its cover, as one should, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lovely design, and it's, but it's like, it's stark, it right. is stark. It's like, it's, it's, I'm pretty it's happy stark, with the cover. It looks and good. And it's not, yeah. Um, but it it conveys, I think, that this will not just tell you why we're polarized, but that you should be kind of spooked by this, right? It's not like why we're polarized and then there's like happy children. A, re- a reviewer said that the book develops the um, inevitable logic of a nightmare, which I liked as a, as a right, right. statement about which, it. Which, I mean, I, I, and I do think it's, it's, it's worth emphasizing that, like, this is our, our friend, our friend Sam Rosenfeld's book is a, is a great history of this, this process, but, like, 
people wanted to make American politics more polarized. And, the, and there were people on the other side, but like there was a pro-polarization view for a long time. Um, and I think your view, though, is that this is not great where we have landed. I, I would say that my view is more subtle than that. Um, I do not think polarization itself should be understood as a problem. I think probably the depolarized America of the mid-20th century should be seen as the aberration. What is distinct about the American system of governance is it in order for it to function, given the its preference for divided government, given the number of veto points, things like the Senate filibuster, the way we've cut congressional districts, the Electoral College, um, all kinds of things going on in, in, in America. Given the way the system is structured, it just is not the case here that when you win an election, what you win is a governing majority. Often you win an election and you don't win any capacity to govern whatsoever, right? You have Barack Obama's president and Mitch McConnell's majority leader and nobody can decide what to do about the Supreme Court vacancy. And so polarization can be a neutral thing. In some cases, it can actually be a good thing. One reason we were depolarized in the 20th century is that the two parties had basically made a tacit agreement to not push forward on civil rights and anti-lynching and voting rights laws. And so like that kind of like golden age of cross-party cooperation was built on this like horrifying boneyard of Southern racism. Um, Polarization, the alternative to polarization is often suppression of disagreement, and so that can be quite bad. But we are in this era where what polarization is also doing is, one, ratcheting up the intensity of disagreements that, you know, otherwise should be reasonably uh, solvable, and two, is making it basically impossible to govern. Um, and so I, I tell at some length, like the Mitch McConnell, Merrick Garland story, and make the argument that I think a lot of uh, liberals will not like, that what Mitch McConnell did was a pretty rational thing within the structures and incentives of American politics. Like it used to be that Supreme Court nominees are pretty ideologically unpredictable. That is not true anymore. It is arguably one of the most important ideological votes anybody takes in Congress. And so having an ideological litmus test for your Supreme Court nominees, it's like not crazy. The problem is the U.S. structure has no answer for how to resolve a dispute like that. Uh, and you could just imagine it, you know, destroying the Supreme Court over time is no party will, will ever clear an opposite uh, party's presidential nomination to the Supreme Court. And so polarization can be fine if you can govern amidst polarization. What we have is a system where you cannot govern amidst polarization, but we have a lot of polarization. And so that's the problem. And you can imagine trying to solve it either the way I think most people in Washington think about it, which is, well, let's just not be polarized anymore. Um, but mm -hmm. I don't think it's going to happen. So you can also imagine solving it, quote unquote, solving it by making uh, majoritarian governance easier to do. Uh, that is also hard because for the same reason polarization makes anything hard to do, it also makes it hard to restructure the entire American political system. But there you go. So majoritarian governance, right? I, I mean, it can, it can mean different things. Um, but I mean, one question you might have about that is like, look, given this effective polarization, given the level of negative partisanship and sort of fear and, and stuff in society that, you know, creating a more like one and done kind of politics like they have in the UK, like, isn't that going to make everything like even worse? Like it will be completely intolerable to lose an election in a in a clear majoritarian system. And particularly given that, you know, elections are close, they turn on like weird stuff. Like, isn't that going to like, like raise the stakes to like a completely unsustainable boil. And then one thing right now is you can at least tell people, like, actually, you should maybe, like, calm down 
a little bit. Like, there's a lot of constraints on what presidents can actually do. Um, as long as we, like, don't have the cameras on, members of Congress can sometimes, like, cut deals and, and pass compromise bills. And, like, shouldn't we, like, like could, couldn't this Madisonian system be, like, the one thing holding us together as a society? Yes, and the answer to that is no. <laughs> <laughs> um, for a bunch of reasons, but one is that it— I think there's good reason to believe, and I have like a lot of political science in there from Francis Lee and others about this, that actually one of the most kind of toxic situations the system can be in is a space of incredibly close competition for power where at all times either party thinks they're just one election away from, from either losing or winning back, you know, majority control. And at the same time, you can't do anything with it. So the American people can't judge that, oh, yeah, like I really love – the single-payer system the Democrats passed, or I really think the way, you know, Republicans governed is great because, like, I don't pay taxes anymore. So you're not answering any of the problems. You're not giving people a clear record of governance to judge you on and maybe change their opinions on. You're just in this kind of position of constant super high-stakes gridlock, and, and, and that's a pretty – difficult place to be in. So one of the thing, what, one way to think about this maybe is something that I think is a really bad contributor to our toxic politics is the Republican Party, due to the way America filters political power through geography, has gotten into a situation where it can consistently win um, electoral power without winning a majority in elections. And that is primarily because it's able – the Republican Party is overrepresented in more rural areas that are um, disproportionately powerful in elections but highly represent older white voters who are much more conservative. And so if you imagine American um, politics as a more majoritarian system where like you actually need to win more votes to, to win – you would have a, a situation where, if nothing else had changed, Republicans would have lost six of the last seven presidential elections. Mitch McConnell would not currently be the Senate Majority Leader, and uh, Republicans would not, in fact, have control of the Supreme Court. That is not the way that would have gone. What would have happened is that because the country is diversifying and because Republicans cannot win without appealing to that more diverse America, they would have, like, moderated themselves on race and, and maybe also religious conflict in order to be a more inclusive party. And you see this in some other places, right? The two most popular governors in the country are Republican governors in Maryland and Massachusetts who govern in a sort of moderate Republican way. There's a very old tradition of that. So among other things, I think the, the system is quite badly distorted by the way that it, it refilters itself across geography in ways that, that deepen these conflicts. Then the second thing you say, um, you know, even putting that aside is, well, wouldn't it be worse if the parties could come in and just do whatever they wanted because then, like, people look at that and, and really hate it? I just Chaos. think the incentives of the American people looking at a governing coalition and saying, I like what they did or I don't like what they did, that would actually, I think, convince more people to move and, and, and make the sort of um, what it means for me question a lot clearer than this system where you have to be a congressional reporter to figure out the unclear lines of accountability on why nobody's solving any problems. So, you know, if Donald Trump had come in and just like done everything Donald Trump wanted to do or Barack Obama had come in and done everything Barack Obama wanted to do or Bernie Sanders could come in and like do the whole democratic socialist agenda, people could then like look around and say, do I like that or I hate it? But what ends up happening is everybody comes in and they pass like somewhere between 6% and 20% of their actual agenda and complain the other side 
is keeping them from getting anything done. And you just you're just constantly in this like people's problems aren't being solved. It's not clear exactly who to blame. And so you just fall back on on this group competition. Yeah, I want to be clear. I agree with you. I just I felt it was my responsibility. No, no, no. Don't don't as an don't interviewer to play to play devil's No, please, advocate. please play devil's no, I mean, advocate. I, I, I actually think that that thing, right? The the sort of frustration of governance capacity, actually, really encourages. This is something you you said earlier, right? But like, it, it encourages people to think of politics in symbolic rather than practical terms right. because it's actually difficult, right? Like we we sit here, right? Like we have like a whole team of professional political journalists. And we'll sometimes be like, a good idea for an article is to try to figure out, like, what's actually at stake in this election. Yes. And you got to, like, work <laughs> really hard at it, right? Like, it's genuinely not like obvious, right? And and you can figure it out, but it's a it's a challenging task. Right. I mean, you just did this great case for Bernie Sanders piece, but the I mean the way you build the case, given the reality of American politics, is that it is just not the case, the case for Bernie Sanders is he will pass his agenda. The case right, for Bernie yes. Sanders is that he will include leftist political activists in the political system, and he's like a pretty savvy legislator who has a lot of experience, and he's probably reasonably electo- electable in Wisconsin and Michigan. But I think the case for Bernie Sanders or the case against him should be that you like his agenda or you don't. And it is a failure of American politics that, like, we just can't have that argument. Right. Well, and in particular, it just – it would encourage people to align themselves with politicians more on the basis of what they think the consequences of people with those ideas being in office are just because it would be easier to, like, connect cause and effect. Yes, exactly. Whereas, like, right now, it's very – murky, right? Like, you might really, really, really want, like, the government to provide more child care assistance. And, like, I guess I could tell you that I think Elizabeth Warren has prioritized that higher than other candidates, so maybe you should vote for her. But my level of confidence in that forecast is, like, pretty low because, like, there's 80 billion other considerations where it should just be like, okay, who, who, like, gives you warm feels? Like, you can figure that out you know, like in a pretty sort of straightforward way. But so the metaphor of polarization, right? You were talking about like magnets and, and you know, little lead particles. Uh, I, I took an optics class in college, so I, I think about light. Um, it implies equivalence, right? Yes. But I feel like what you are saying is that there is important asymmetry yes. in, the, in the system that, like, slightly breaks the metaphor. Yeah, this is um, – I have a chapter in the book. It's a penultimate chapter. And I think people – this was a chapter where I actually felt like I had to do work that I didn't expect because it turns out that um, there have been good books making the case that there is asymmetric polarization, that the Republican parties become something very different than the Democratic Party. Uh, Norm Ornstein and Tom Mann have a great book called It's Even Worse Than It Looks. But when I began looking into the – arguments for why that is, I found it pretty wanting. Um, like the, the the fact of it was well proven, but the causal story was quite weak. And yeah, because they said just like, well, Newt Gingrich was a maniac. Yeah, but like, okay, but like, so why did, right, why did Newt Gingrich become the speaker, right? Why, right? why did Republicans drive out two House speakers in just a couple of years, whereas House Democrats today are led by the exact same leadership team as in 2006? Mm-hmm. Um, that's interesting. Why did Republicans nominate Donald Trump 
um, this like super weird, disruptive, like antagonistic force in 2016 and Democrats nominated Hillary Clinton. What is happening here? And so the thing that I think is really important to, to recognize is uh, uh, on, on a couple levels, something that looks from afar like symmetry is asymmetry. So we often will say something like, oh, well, the Democratic Party is a coalition of like white and non-white vote, like it's a multiracial coalition and the Republican Party is a more homogenous coalition. Same is true on religion, same is true on a couple other things. And like when you say that, that sounds sort of similar, right? Multiracial versus homogenous, okay, fine. But it's actually not the same at all. What it says over and over and over again is a Democratic Party is a coalition of a lot of different kinds of groups who have different incentives, different outlooks, different needs. And in order to, to, to win as a Democrat, you first need to win over a critical mass of those groups. So you need to win, like, potentially um, liberal whites in New Hampshire and Iowa and then traditionalist African-Americans in South Carolina. But then to win power as a Democrat because of the structure of the Senate, because of the structure of the Electoral College, you need to win center-right voters too. So the Democratic Party ends up selecting for much more coalitional politicians. The Republican Party is a much more homogenous coalition, and that incentivizes um, like a, instead of a going broad strategy, a going deep strategy. And a real irony of politics is that what that makes people say is the Democratic Party plays identity politics, whereas the Republican Party doesn't. And what it actually means is the Democratic Party, uh, because there are a lot of different identity groups in it, no one is that dominant. So you can see the fact that compromises are being made between them. The Republican Party has one dominant identity group. It is white Christians. Um, and so like much less compromise – like fun fundamentally it ends up being a compromise – a coalition between white Christians and corporate executives. Like that is like how the Republican Party functions. And so identity politics are actually a lot stronger in the Republican Party than the Democratic Party but more visible in the Democratic Party than the Republican Party. Um, another thing here, which I think is somewhat related, is that the Democratic Party has remained very tethered to mainstream informational ecosystems. So, in right, particular, Democrats the, have this have this um, uh, like uh, attachment to like the discourse of of, of public reason and the, the way an appeal to neutral to neutral. Right? That's I think the key thing. So, the Democratic Party is very connected to the mainstream media where the business model of like the New York Times or CBS News is that they are not part of the Democratic Party. Like it may be – they may lean liberal, particularly culturally, but they want to antagonistically report on Democrats in the liberal movement. And so like if you talk to Bernie Sanders supporters, like they don't like the New York Times. Um, the Republican Party has just like abandoned all that. And so you'll see these like surveys and there have been dozens of them now about like which uh, media sources the two sides trust. And Democrats trust a bunch of – mainstream sources, but including some center-right ones, like they trust The Economist, they trust The Wall Street Journal, uh, and like committed conservatives, they only trust right-wing news sources. And then academia is another version of this, where Democrats trust academia, which often does play a, a restraining role, right? I mean, I think a good example is a way that global warming denialism did take over the Republican Party, but something like GMO denial, a GMO kind of fear-mongering didn't take over the Democratic Party because even though that is pretty constant, like you will hear that from sort of grassroots liberals, there's like this like countervailing force from like food scientists who say it's not a problem. And so like when we launched Vox, we had a, a card stack on GMOs by Brad Plumer and it was like, we there is no evidence like this is something you should be afraid of. And so 
the republic like the democratic party is constrained by institutions that have different incentives than it does um from its more wild flights of fancy not all the time and you can definitely and reasonably argue those constraints are weakening but they're certainly there in a way they're not on the republican side and you, and you see it in in scandal politics right mm-hmm. if the new york times does an investigation and it's like oh donald trump is like getting all this money from these guys and it seems really bad trump can just be like eh fuck you and then it's just Like, it doesn't matter to Republicans what the New York Times says. So then the story just kind of goes away, right? Whereas Democrats, like, individual Democratic Party politicians, like uh, Bernie Sanders has a a sort of distrustful, antagonistic relationship with the mainstream media. Hillary Clinton had her own sort of personal stuff going on. But, like, Democrats writ large, a healthy chunk of them, like, watch the CBS Evening News or read the New York Times or even read the Wall Street Journal. So if there's a negative story about you in the Times, you need to answer it. Right. right? And this is why the butthurt email stuff is really important. Right, because you you need to apologize somehow. And if the apology is not accepted by actors who stand outside the party structure, you are hurt. Like your own supporters will become demoralized by your failure to garner positive coverage in CNN and The Times and and the network news. So you have to be constantly doing that doing that work and worrying about how's this going to play? How's it going to look? What's the appearance of of impropriety? And Republicans have to worry a lot about what Fox News thinks. Yes. And and so the big picture way I put this in the book is Democrats are restrained. Polarization among Democrats is is happening and it's clearly happening. I mean, look at – uh, you know, what is happening in, in even the primary. But polarization and its effects on Democrats are restrained by um, the immune systems of democracy and diversity. The Democratic Party is more internally diverse than the Republican Party. It is more externally diverse in terms of who it listens to than the Republican coalition. And then because of the way our sort of quote-unquote democracy works, Democrats need to win over voters in um, like center-right places. The the average state is to the right of the average voter by quite a bit. The average congressional district is to the right of the average voter, and the average electoral college vote is to the right uh, of the average voter. And so Democrats have to like restrain themselves from kind of following some of their flights of fancy in order to win over these center-right voters. There is a, a, an intense dialogue among Democrats about how to win somewhat conservative-leaning like white Wisconsinites um, because they can't just rely on putting back together Hillary Clinton's 3 million popular vote majority from 2016. Uh, whereas the Republican Party, if it also had to do that, that would be a restraining force on it. Um, Donald Trump is not a super high-performing politician against the fundamentals. Uh, Donald Trump appears to do worse than another Republican would do given the economic fundamentals, given what else is going on. He's a very strong politician inside the Republican Party, obviously. But the only reason – if Donald, if what had happened in 2016 was Democrats had nominated this now understood to be quite weak candidate Hillary Clinton – And Republicans had nominated over the objections of many in the conservative movement this like louche, thrice-married adulterer Donald Trump. And then Donald Trump had lost the election by 3 million votes to Hillary Clinton. What there would be would be a massive backlash to the Trumpist wing of the Republican Party because he had lost a winnable election against Hillary Clinton. Like, look, she she was a terrible candidate. Like, we could have won. And now Democrats have the Supreme Court because we elected Donald Trump. 
Trump instead of going with John Kasich or Marco Rubio or name your person. But instead, like, they got this electoral college majority. And so, like, the Trumpist wing is ascendant. So if Republicans did not have – like, if the thing was actually democracy and Republicans did not have that protection, they would be trying to reform themselves to win elections. And instead, they're leaning deeper into this, like, white ethnopolitics. So here's one thing that I worry about, though, right, which is that, you know, as you said, like, Democrats have the geography skewed against them. So, you know, you can say that's unfair, but, like, Mm -hmm. you have to deal with it. And in particular, if you want to reform the system, you have to win first. But to the extent that people relate to politics in a less practical way, right, and as you were saying, like, the most engaged people have the least sort of, like, material connection to politics— I feel like it encourages Democrats sort of not quite elites, but like high, high engagement people to just sort of be like, fuck this. Like, it's it's not fair that I should have to cater to the voters in Montana or rural Wisconsin. So I don't want to. Mm-hmm. The funny thing about that, though, is and, – and you have this great coining of the pundits fallacy for it – is that mm-hmm. people almost never admit that that is what they're doing, right? The thing sure. I never hear anybody say on on either side but on the Democratic side is that, like, I think Bernie Sanders is the best candidate. But I also really think we need to win kind of, like, centrist voters in Michigan and Wisconsin. And, like, just, like, look at the polls. Joe Biden does better against them. So, like, let's support Joe Biden even though I prefer Bernie Sanders. Or, screw it, like, I think the risk of Bernie Sanders is worth the reward. Or conversely, like, I don't hear people who support Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg, like, make the argument in reverse, right? I would like this more centrist candidate. But honestly, we're in a populist moment. People want somebody who will blow up the system. You know, like let's support the the the, the more intense can the the more leftist candidates in order to win it. So what people do is they sort of reason backwards from the candidate they prefer into the politics they prefer. People sort of it is just continuously the view that people on the left hold that Bernie Sanders is going to awaken a multiracial working class coalition that will reshape American politics. It is continuously the view of Biden voters that you know just like look at the polls, he's the most electable candidate. Um, Warren voters think you know, in general, that she'll do the best. So it's one of these weird things where on the one hand, yeah, like one version of that is people look at this and say, I don't think I should have to compromise, so I won't. But actually in practice, what happens is they they say that compromising is the problem. And if everybody would listen to me and not compromise, we would do better. And that's a very popular discourse on both the right and the left. Right. But I mean, I guess one question about that, right, is like if Bernie Sanders becomes the nominee, Elizabeth Warren becomes the nominee, and then that person runs, and then the millions of new voters fail to materialize, and they again win the popular vote by two or three or maybe even four million, but lose the Electoral College? Like, does that lead people to say, like, okay, the math on this just doesn't work? Like, it's unfair, you know, that we lose with a popular majority, but, like, we got to go do something else? Or do people just I don't just know. I mean, we've not, talk, we've not talked about sort of the way some of this has changed, even just technologically. I mean, Twitter is a very – it um, pushes for a very antagonistic and, like, self-righteous form of politics. <laughs> there is – I mean, I have heard political scientists say, and I think the, 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 evident, the example this people know is Bill Clinton, that there's a kind of pattern where – Political parties lose an election and don't think that much of it. Then they lose a second election. And, um, like, they, like, 
they like after losing election, they tend to double down. And after losing a second election, they tend to moderate. And so famously, Bill Clinton in 1992 is his candidate who is – he's a DLC candidate, a new Democrat. They've lost three, right? That was the right, idea. Right. He's lost right? three. And so there was an idea, you know, if the Republican Party kind of followed this pattern that, you know, maybe if they tried Donald Trump and got it out of their system, they would uh, moderate in the future. I have no idea. I can't predict that. I think that there are other forces and a lot of the book is about – the sort of institutional feedback loops is kind of polarization is set off in the media, in um, the way elections are contested. Uh, as persuadable voters have gone down, you've seen a, a strong focus on base mobilizing candidates and messages, on the way governance is constructed. So there are reasons to think that um, the push to just keep being very polarized in your political theorizing um, and in your political activity is very strong in ways that even if political parties wanted to get away from it, they no longer have the power to do. I just don't truly know the answer on that. Okay, so, you know, d- greater sort of democratization, move to majority rule, uh, helpful. Is, is there any any anything else that, that you know, can be can be done to fix this? Is there things like we in, in the media should do, consumers of the media should do to, to set things right? The, I have a, I, you, I write in the book in the concluding chapter that I'm more confident in diagnosis here than prescription. I don't mm-hmm. like concluding chapters in general because I feel like hard social problems are hard to solve. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, you can do a raft of things to democratize the country, um, you know, all the way from, you know, kind of imagining reconstructing a parliamentary form of government to the things I actually sort of propose are more like getting rid of the filibuster, moving to proportional representation and things like IRV voting, uh, you know, doing some kind of campaign finance reform. There's a bunch of stuff that would be good. The thing I say for people individually, though, which I, I do think is – is an actionable thing, and I'm not saying that anybody individually doing this will fix American politics, but I think people should do it, is that one of the very powerful forces that have polarized the the system is a nationalization of all politics. One of the very important cross-cutting political identities was, you know, maybe you're a Republican, but you're a Republican from Oklahoma. Maybe you're a Democrat, but you're a Democrat from Virginia. And so when, like, things were happening on the floor of Congress, the other party might come to you and say, yeah, like, look, I know that your party doesn't want you to vote for this, but if you do vote for it, we're going to give you – we're going to fix this bridge in your district or, or earmark money to build you this hospital. And that used to work. Um, you know, sort of one of the last, like, good examples of this um, happening, and you see the way it begins to fail, is Ben Nelson cutting this deal in Obamacare. Ben Nelson from Nebraska, kind of the holdout senator, a Democrat. He wants to vote for the bill. It's not popular in his red home state. So he cuts this deal where the Obama administration will make the Medicaid expansion free for Nebraska. And it gets called the Cornhusker kickback, and his own Republican governor begins attacking him on it. And ultimately, he votes for the bill without the deal. Um, so Nebraska gets a worse deal than it otherwise would have, and Ben Nelson retires. So one of the things happening is that people have replaced what used to be quite strong state and local identities, right? That old adage, all politics is local, with nationalized political identities, in part because people now are connected to national political media. Um, when I grew up, I mean, you you were a Manhattan kid, so you were like in the epicenter of national media. You read the New York Times and the whole thing. But I got the LA Times. Um, my family did. Uh, I listened to KCRW, the, the LA um, NPR. Today, I'm sure like I would listen to like The Weeds and read The New York Times online. And and so I really do urge people for a bunch of different reasons to uh, – and I know this is a bit against interest as one of the founders of Vox. But if 
you basically read entirely national politics. Like, think about twisting that back a bit. State and local stuff is really important. Um, the the questions and differences and demands are different. And getting involved there is a lot more nourishing a form of political activity. You're actually doing organizing with real people. You um, can do a lot more to affect change. Your, like, city council member or state representative or state senator will probably meet with you and actually care about you knowing who they are, whereas you have, like, no effect tweeting things at Donald Trump or, like, getting mad about Senate races. So, like, actually trying to reinvest in state and local politics would both be good for um, political polarization but is a much like I think would be good for individual people. I think that kind of political organizing makes you feel good, whereas national politics and sitting around doing like Twitter activism tends to make people feel quite bad. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a, a sort of really interesting, provocative point that comes at the at the end of your book, right? Which is not just that you could consume different news, but that like you could actually do something yeah. in local politics. You would have a lot more efficacy um, in in a local issue rather than sort of shouting into the void. Um, And and I do think people find local politics can be, as American politics has always been, like divisive, like people are arguing about things in sharp-elbowed ways, but it doesn't track the same bundle of national-level identities. It comes closer to being like people just have a disagreement. Yeah, and even if what you want to do is be very involved in in national politics, what national politicians really want from you is to be able to organize locally. Uh, And so just even getting that practice in and building those connections and understanding what is going on in your your local space is really important. Um, Not to recommend other books because you should buy mine first, but there's a good new book on political hobbyism called From uh, from a Political Scientist Named Itan Hirsch, uh, which I think is like quite good on these issues. And – you know, I was hanging out for a, a, a story I'm doing with the – there's a group here in, in the Bay Area um, called SF uh, Yimby, which are, you know, yes in my backyard. Weeds listeners will know about the Yimbys. But, you know, I was like hanging out with some of them at a um, at a planning meeting. And it just was interesting to me how different it was to like be with this local group of people who, you know, what they – like it was fun for – like they were doing real organizing and really trying to change an important um, issue in California. They they want to lobby for SB 50 and, and, and all this different stuff. But they also like – they're hanging out with each other. They're arguing with people in their community at an actual thing in real life. So like they, they sort of talk to each other and I watch them like, you know, stand up at the mic and berate each other and then talk afterwards. And you could just see how much more nourishing a form of political um, engagement that was. And it also gave them very different views on on national politics. I mean, something for them was that some of the political divisions nationally, right, which are, you know, a lot of them are understood as sort of corporations versus like ordinary people or Republicans versus Democrats. You know, in San Francisco, that breaks down um, quite a bit, particularly around housing politics. Like they're looking at it and they say, well, you know – here, it's not clear. Um, sometimes you have corporations on both sides of a planning issue. Oftentimes, like, the most progressive people are doing the most to keep, like, poor people from having affordable housing. So it scrambles your view of politics in ways that are, I think, pretty healthy. But even if it doesn't do that, I just, like, get involved locally, like, just and, – and, and support local political journalism. Like, if all you have are subscriptions to national um, uh, news organizations – there's probably someone covering your local area. Um, make that part of your diet. You can do that. A big part of this, a big part of the broad theory of identity that I, I build in the book, and, and we've only talked about a bit here, but identities work and strengthen under activation. And identities that are not activated, that are not reinforced, um, uh, become dormant, they become weaker, eventually they dissolve. And so 
one of the things happening around national political identities and these like stacked national political identities is there's what is functionally a massive conspiracy to constantly reinforce them, right? To constantly activate and reinforce them. If you're watching MSNBC or CNN or you're on Twitter or, or you're reading Vox or whatever it is, you're constantly getting this like national political identity pinged and strengthened. If you want to build um, other kinds of political identities, local political identities, you have to intentionally do that. You have to set up an informational system that is going to make you feel that routinely. People, Nobody's going to do it for you in the way it's happening in other places. But part if you think it's a healthier identity, and I at least think it's healthy as one of your central political identities, um, it's worth putting in, putting in that work from the beginning. Okay, fantastic. Ezra Klein, the book is Why We're Polarized. Uh, but before I let you go, I like to ask people uh, is if there's anything uh, that was left out that, that you wish I'd, I'd asked you about that we should have talked about here. Oh, man. The, the problem with having written a book is you know too much. I mean, the uh, only thing that we – there's a lot in the book we didn't talk about. But something that I think would be interesting if you want to talk about it is there's a lot on the media and media incentives in the book. And like we operate within that. And I think it's it's – I've been doing a lot of thinking about like how how the media both, you know, some days makes things better, but also is like a, a handmaid into a lot of this polarization. But on the other hand, um, like the incentives for the media and what people see and don't see, like really pushes you in that direction. And I'll at least say, like, I think the media chapter of the book is complex and interesting, and people should take a look at it because certainly uh it's something that I'm thinking a lot about for myself and and for Vox. Like, how do you if you think what has happened in the news cycle, is it the way attention and controversy is directed has itself become somewhat toxic, then even doing good work on top of that news cycle can be giving attention to the wrong things. And like that's a tricky piece of a piece of it all. Yeah, I mean that's that's a great chapter. I mean, it's something obviously I think about because I because I work in this field. Uh, but that also, I mean, I hope readers, you know, will think about because uh, you know we are all constrained by the objective incentives that we face. And to some extent, that just stems from the technology and, and the paradigms that exist. But, like, it does also stem from user behaviors that people can try to be more, you know, conscientious about um, in, in sort of what what they do that themselves. Uh, because I, I feel like almost nobody in America, like, feels like the current information ecology that exists is, like, really, really good. But, like, it doesn't change unless you, you do something about it. That is a good place to close. There you go. Okay, so obviously one thing you should do is recommend The Weeds to all of your friends. Uh, come to our Facebook group, uh, see, see what you think. Buy Ezra's book, Why We're Polarized. Listen to other Vox Media podcasts. Uh, it's all great out there. Uh, thanks so much, Ezra. Uh, thanks, Jeff Geld, our producer. And The Weeds will be back on Tuesday. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Designers and devs, you might be able to do your thing better on Wix Studio, a web platform with everything you need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Design teams get a ton of smart features that can take the grind out of web creation without it costing per-pixel control. Dev teams, you get a zero-setup, developer-first environment combined with an AI code assistant and your preferred IDE for rapid deployment. Search Wix Studio today to explore the full range of features.